Welcome to the Tiny Living Beings podcast. I'm your host, Julia Van Etten. Each episode, I have a conversation with a scientist about a microorganism they like and why it's interesting to them. Our planet is full of billions of different microscopic organisms, most of which are still unknown to science. The ones we do know are diverse and strange. This week, David Booth is on to talk about coanoflagellates. These are unicellular protists that are the closest relatives to animals. This means that other than all other animals, we share our most recent common ancestor with the coanoflagellates. Not only are these some of the coolest organisms out there, but David does an amazing job talking about them. We cover everything from what they are, what they look like, and where they live, to their ecology and impact on the organisms around them. And vice versa, because I got to learn that bacteria and other microbes have pretty big impacts on them. David also unpacks the whole story of their discovery and how the scientific community came to understand animal evolution. He points out the challenges and controversies associated with understanding events that occurred hundreds of millions of years ago, and he quotes lots of amazing research, including some of his own. I have a feeling a lot of the listeners haven't heard of coenoflagellates before, and you're going to learn a lot of cool stuff in the next hour. For more information about microbes of the podcast, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. While some of the content on this podcast may be relevant to human or veterinary medicine, this information is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests and do not reflect the views of any institution. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Tiny Living Beings. I'm here today with David Booth, who is an assistant professor at University of California, San Francisco. Hi, David. How's it going? Good. How are you, Julia? I'm great. Before we start, could you give a quick summary of your scientific background and what it is that you currently do? Yeah. So as you said, I run a lab at UCSF. And I was in graduate school at UCSF and trained to be a structural biologist looking at host pathogen interactions with HIV. And then I wanted to do something fun and different and learn evolution and genetics. And when I came across Nicole King's lab, I was very excited. So I did a postdoc in her lab and established the first reverse genetic tools for coenoflagellates that allow us to look at their molecular biology. And now in my own lab, we try to understand how coenoflagellates, which are the closest living relatives of animals, are able to morph between different types of cells. And we try to understand the mechanisms that allow them to do so and the functions that those cells can play in the environment and use those insights to try to illuminate how animals originated. That's awesome. You have no idea how excited I am to do this episode. <laughs> like, <laughs> I follow Nicole King's work. I'm aware of a lot of your work. And I just love quinoflagellates. I think they're so cool. They, they're very <laughs> cute. I feel you can only really appreciate them when you're looking down some microscope lenses and see them swimming around. Yeah, and they're so tiny. Well, so I'm going to just skip the next question where I say, what are we talking about today? And I'm just going to go right into... Can you explain what is a coenoflagellate? What does it look like? What do they do? Yeah, so coenoflagellate basically looks like a sperm with a skirt. And Ed Young gave it this description in I Contain Multitudes. And so it has a cell body that's about the size of a yeast cell, which is five microns, with a flagellum that we call the apical side of the cell. 
And surrounding that flagellum is basically a picket fence of actin-filled filaments that are like microvilli. And the flagellum with those actin filaments are called the collar complex. And that's basically how we find them and can get them from any body of water. You can find them in any aquatic environment. So they're little microeukaryotes. They sit in this evolutionary position between fungi and animals, which really helps us reconstruct some of the earliest genetic changes that help set the foundation for animals. And on their own, coanoflagellates are awesome and probably play really important ecological roles in their environment. They're very, very, very efficient at eating particles in their water, especially their main food source, which are bacteria and probably tiny algal cells. So they are able to eat so effectively because that apical flagellum I was talking about is able to create these fluid flows that trap bacteria and other things in their collar, and then they phagocytose really effectively and bring those particles inside of the cell. I think it's also important to remember in their environmental context, they are surrounded by a whole community of other microorganisms, including we can find them attached to things like diatoms and probably are able to use a complementary cell biology to break down bigger particles of organic matter and also insoluble minerals and be able to disperse them to other organisms within their environment. That's one hypothesis we have for what they do. So they're really able to use this filter feeding quite efficiently. Yeah, so that is really interesting. And I love that you brought up that you find them on diatoms because I was going to mention, like, I do a lot of hobby microscopy and I've found quantoflagellates like three times and every time they've been living on diatoms. And I found them in freshwater and saltwater. And both times they were just hanging out on big diatoms. Yeah. So freshwater uh, coano diatom interactions have been pretty well described in the literature in some older papers. The seawater, not so much, but they're there. We see them in the California coast. One of my friends over in Nicole's lab has also seen them interact with a different type of diatom. And I think definitely in coastal environments, it's pretty easy to see them attached to diatoms. We also have some evidence in our lab that perhaps those associations could be species-specific, mm. that not any coanoflagellate that can build this attachment apparatus that we call a theca, which is basically like a wine glass that they probably make from polysaccharides and proteins. Not every coanoflagellate can attach to the same diatom, and they even attach to different places. So I think there's some fascinating biology to be discovered there, and that's something that my lab is starting to pursue. That's really cool. So I'm a protist guy, so I think everything you just said about what they do in nature on their own is really exciting, and I feel like I don't even hear about that stuff a lot because coenoflagellates' major claim to fame is their relationship to metazoa, to animals, right? So could you explain that whole story? <laughs> yeah, so that's a long, sorted story. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is very cool. So in the mid-1800s, when microscopes started getting more powerful and you could resolve different structures on these tiny cells, right, which are only five microns, three biologists, Aaron Berg, uh, Seville Kent, and James Henry Clark started to notice these extracellular features. And those features, they thought, 
looked very similar to the cells that make up the feeding chambers of sponges, which are called coenocytes. And those are bigger cells that really are tightly packed together that have a similar architecture of these apical flagella surrounded by an axon collar. And so that led to a roiling debate of whether sponges were the most evolved, like highest protist, mm-hmm. or if they were the earliest branching animal and coenoflagellates were closely related to them. That debate kind of got forgotten about, and there was a really amazing group of European protozoologists mainly who were able to study coenoflagellates like up until the 90s and describe some cool species of coenoflagellates, one of them being Barry Ledbetter, who's a very charming Englishman. Then in the 90s, there was a paper in science that was trying to put together the first phylogenetic relationships, like Wainwright, 1993, and use ribosomal RNA in order to understand where animals are. And that paper showed fungi are really closely related to animals. And there was this random sequence of a coenoflagellate that was even closer to animals. So that set the stage for my postdoc mentor, Nicole, and others to start hypothesizing that coenoflagellates were indeed the closest living relatives of animals and trying to get evidence for that. It was actually a little difficult to establish that in a more rigorous way because there's a really weird evolution of elongation factors for translation that caused some spurious trees. But eventually, other people like Inyaki Rui's trio was able to use whole genomes and perform early phylogenomics that really firmly put coenoflagellates as the closest living relatives of animals. And so... That's the whole story. From morphological features to DNA evidence, they're able to really place together coenoflagellates as the sister group of animals. But what was even cooler is when Nicole started cloning DNA out from coenoflagellates, she started getting these sequences in express sequence tags, which young graduate students don't know about at all, which are basically these short stretches that would correspond to parts of cDNA to understand what were expressed proteins. And she got these sequences for receptor tyrosine kinases, for C-type lectins, which were at the time genes that were only found in animals. So that really indicated that the genetic toolkit of coenoflagellates is a lot closer to animals. And then as genomes came out of coenoflagellates and also their close friends, the sister groups of coenoflagellates and animals like Philisterians and Ichthyosporians, what we get is this picture that the genetic foundations of animal development evolved before animals ever did. And Dan Richter, who was a graduate student in Nicole's lab and now has his own lab in Barcelona, has done a really nice study of looking at 19 transcriptomes from different coenoflagellates and then three coenoflagellate genomes indicate that there are few gene families that are unique to animals, probably only 26. And most of the things that we think of like really important animal developmental gene families are present in some coenoflagellate out there. Cool. I love this whole story. And I think if nothing else, I'm always trying to get people to be interested in protists. And I say it all the time, but plants, animals, fungi, everything that's evolved, complex multicellularity evolved from protist ancestors. So I think that's so cool that you have been able to show that a lot of these 
what we thought were animal-specific traits were actually present before animals even existed. (laughs) Oh, totally. And I think the era of really amazing models in biology that have taught us a lot about the molecular foundations of eukaryotic cells did kind of lead us to some false assumptions that there would be much more unity of life. Mm -hmm. And that's true. A lot of the eukaryotic toolkit is conserved. However, every organism is a freak of nature and how it cobbles and pieces those parts of the eukaryotic toolkit together in order to have their particular lifestyles is unique. And I don't think we can really appreciate that until we understand these major transitions. And the other thing that I like that you point out is it's not just a protist. For every major multicellular group, there's a phagotrophic protist that's like a close sister group to it and probably gives some insights in the early events of that evolution. And one example would be for red and green algaes is this tiny little cell called Rodelphus yes. was recently discovered. Yeah. Oh, trust and- me, I would love to do a Rodelphus episode. <laughs> There's just only like one or two people in the world I could ask to come on to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I bet Patrick Keeling that I think that came from his lab. Yeah, I could ask him. He's he's intimidating. He's <laughs> I'm scared to reach out to him. I mean I'm intimidated by Patrick, but uh, he's also a really fun guy. I know. I've heard. I've only heard good things about him. He just is like the protist guy. I'm like scared to talk to him. He's a good guy. So that's good to know. Maybe I'm going to invite him on. This is good motivation for people listening to this podcast. I think a lot of humans and this is something that comes up on this podcast a lot. A lot of humans have this idea that we are the pinnacle that like all evolution has led up to us. And I think studying protists and microbes is a really good way to never think that way. And I was wondering, could you talk about that was a really good view like 2000 years ago? Yeah, exactly. But people really still think this way. And I was wondering, could you just put this all into the context of time? When did sponges evolve? When do we think that this major transition happened? Because I think it's really important for us to think about how short of a time animals and humans have even been on the planet. Yeah, I think that's really good. So I'll start very far back. Okay. (laughs) No, actually, first, I'll start with the incredible thing that a lot of paleontologists start with when they talk about animals, which is the Cambrian explosion, right? Yeah. So in the fossil record, We have very few indication of the early events of animal evolution. And within a very short time window, there's this whole explosion where we see every single major body plan of animals in fossils that were first seen in the Burgess Shale in the Canadian Rockies. Since then, there are better fossils, or not better, but there are some fossils from earlier sediments that are in China and the Dushanto region, and those show the Ediacaran, which is this event prior. And there we see fossils of sponges and tenophores and these sister groups to bilaterians that a lot of people call early branching metazoa. Okay, so that all happened about five to 700 million years ago, but really the fossil evidence is five to 600 million years ago. And then in the large context of our Earth, our Earth came about about 4.5 billion years ago. Life on Earth evolved 3.5 million years ago. And then eukaryotes emerged 1.5 to 2 billion years ago, somewhere in that range, closer to 2. And so it was really like halfway from the establishment of eukaryotes to our present day is where we see animals popping up. 
But it's important to remember that during that time, it wasn't just animals that were popping up, but every single major eukaryotic group was probably formed. So eukaryotes deeply branch. We really can't tell which are the earliest branching groups of eukaryotes to understand what the ancestral eukaryote may have looked like. And all of those lineages were diversifying rapidly. And so there was an amazing ecological change that was happening on Earth that started depositing a lot of nutrients into the oceans, which is where animals first emerged. That was facilitated by ice ages. There was also an increase in oxygen in the atmosphere as cyanobacteria, which were previously the major oxygen producers, were displaced by green algae that then became the major oxygen producers. And even in our planet today, it's those extant relatives of green algae and red algae that are really the major oxygen producers. And so within a period of 1 billion years ago to 700 billion years ago, there are amazing transformations of the earth. There was an explosion of life and the diversity of life. And here we have the world as we know it, plus, you know, some other major events like terrestrialization of animals and stuff like that. So one motivating factor for my lab of trying to understand the ecology of coenoflagellates now is hopefully we can understand a little more of how they really respond to other organisms and to climactic changes so that we can maybe reconstruct how the geological history that is really only telling us a little bit about the climate and a little bit about the environment, how we could understand what interactions have persisted for a long time and even reconstruct that amazing ecology that had to put pressures on Poeno's animals on their last common ancestor to merge the groups as we know them today. That is awesome. That was a really good explanation, and that makes a lot of sense. In addition to their ecology with the other organisms around them, could you talk a little bit about the interactions between coenoflagellates and the kinds of things that had to go on to facilitate multicellularity? Yeah, that is really great. So I'll start with (laughs) another awesome coeno story from Nicole's lab. Coenoflagellates, when they first started coming up as people were surveying water, saw many different forms of coenoflagellates. So there are these single-celled ones that I talked about, some others that attach via a stalk to other organisms or to just like inanimate matter. Then there are some coenoflagellates that can keep on building the stalk as they divide, and they form these beautiful trees of coenoflagellates. And yet there are others that form this multicellular colony where cells are kind of tightly packed together in a spheroid, and we call those rosettes. And those are evocative of developmental stages for invertebrates and animals, where you just have these cells that are flagellated on the outside, and they're able to eat together. And so this had been known for a while And when Nicole started working on coenoflagellates, she really wanted the multicellular forms. But the fastest growing one was just this unicellular one called Montesega. Mm -hmm. Then I believe the story goes, she got a call from a Coast Guard survey and they said, hey, we have this multicellular coenoflagellate. Do you want it? And she said, yes, of course. So someone isolated it from a flask and then was able to seed this coenoflagellate culture that has now become mostly the model coenoflagellate that we study today, which is called Salpingica rosetta. And it forms rosettes. 
But when Nicole's lab was domesticating that coanoflagellate in lab, the rosettes went away and the culture became single cellular. And then wanting to do a genome project, they needed to get rid of the tons of bacteria that were in the media that the coanoflagellates were chomping on. And then as they started doing so, what happened is these rosettes reappeared. And those antibiotics basically got rid of competitors Mm. for a single species of bacterium, which was called Algorophagus. And we now know from beautiful work from Rosie Aligato, Steve Fairclaw, and Ariel Woznica, and also John Clardy, that these coenoflagellates are responding to a lipid that the bacteria produce, and the bacteria actually induce this multicellular transition. So when we think about ecological interactions, it's huge. So it's saying that bacteria had a very big influence on multicellularity in animals, or, well, we don't know in animals, but we suspect in animals, but that coenoflagellates can actually listen to bacteria, and the fossil record basically indicates there were tons of bacteria around at this time. So those are the sorts of interactions that would happen there. Other interactions and other places that coenoflagellates have been described are attached to algae. And in fact, the oldest fossils for eukaryotes are red algae, the banchiomorphs. And so those were long, or around for a long time. So it's plausible that coenoflagellates really had interactions with those algae. And then for diatom interactions, those actually are probably more modern because diatoms didn't really emerge as major players in our oceans until after the Permian-Triassic mass extinction, which happened about two to 300 million years ago. The other thing about these interactions and what the bacterial observation shows is that coenoflagellates are also regulating their interactions, right? Mm -hmm. That they have a dynamic lifestyle that's really tuned by the environmental cues around them, be they just general nutritional cues or specific signals of specific molecules that are produced from bacteria. And we have some evidence that algae are even able to induce multicellularity in coenoflagellates. And so that shows coenoflagellates are these amazing detectives of their environment and are ready to take advantage of the right environmental condition in order to morph into these different cell types. And at least one thread of my lab is trying to understand maybe what those specific functions of cell types are. And we have evidence that the attached cell is better at degrading iron Mm -hmm. of like these insoluble iron colloids due to the differential expression of one gene than other cell types. And the differential expression is embedded in a cell differentiation program like we think of animal cell types unfolding during development. So I think it's really fun to think of coenoflagellates as just these amazing dynamic little critters that are able to complement interactions and also find new environments that suit them a little bit better. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about, I mean, you know, multicellularity has evolved many times or like colonial protists have evolved many, many times, but like it's really taken off in this lineage to facilitate animal evolution. So it's just fascinating. What are they doing differently that these other colonial protists aren't doing? It's just so interesting. So I took a look at your publications, and I know you mentioned this earlier as well. You've done some genome editing in the quinoflagellates, and genome editing is hot right now. (laughs) So hot. So hot. So could you talk a little bit about what genome editing is, what reverse genetics are, and why you're doing this, and why it's interesting? (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. I'll maybe start with the interesting part. So basically now in this modern era of biology, because sequencing is so cheap and effective, we have way more DNA information and the availability to know when genes arose during evolutionary time. But what we really don't know about a lot of those seminal evolutionary events is if those genes were really important for transitions and have been such important adaptations, perhaps, that they have retained their functions in these sister lineages, or if really the presence of those genes was just a good substrate for a lot of subsequent evolutionary change, and they've been co-opted for new purposes in each of these organisms. So really, the only way that we can truly look at this homology is to understand the functions of those genes and to piece them together within these organisms. And then the other part is like these organisms, I think we have a growing appreciation that small protists are playing important environmental roles. And they're really the base of a lot of food chains, especially in the ocean, to be able to perform really essential environmental functions. But we don't know much about their molecular biology like we know about terrestrial things or model organisms. So one thing that we would like to do is ask, If this gene is present or mutated, or maybe there's a different version of this gene, how does that affect the organism? And to be able to basically take genetic information or biochemical information and then go back to an organism's genome and manipulate the genes and then see what the phenotype is or the apparent changes that we can see in a microscope, that's called reverse genetics. And so that has become a lot easier because of amazing discoveries in 2012 from Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier and Feng Zhang to really take these nucleases that can be programmed with a short bit of RNA that can find a DNA sequence. And then these nucleases cut the DNA and endogenous mechanisms inside of the cell repair that DNA usually in an air-prone way to introduce mutations. So that's my thumbnail sketch of what genome editing is. Yeah, so look up, Uh, people listening, look up CRISPR-Cas9 and then... (laughs) CRISPR-Cas9, yeah. Yeah. Um, And there was a previous version of this called Talens and Dana Mm -hmm. Carroll, the University of Utah did this with programmable zinc finger nucleases and other things, so... But that was really, really harrowing and difficult to do. And I think Maria Jason also, she showed the really beautiful thing in the mid-90s where if you just cut some DNA in a genome, it'll introduce a break that the cell can take advantage of. So there's also a long history before just CRISPR of being able to manipulate genomes by introducing cuts in them. Yeah, of course. We'll give credit where credit's due. So what was very exciting when that came out is it now opened up the possibilities to make a lot more organisms amenable to genetics. So previously, there were some lucky strokes that people had in the past to be able to introduce bits of purified DNA into a cell. And then if there were stretches of DNA that looked similar to the genome inside of a cell, those inserts of DNA would basically recombine and you could introduce these chunks of DNA and make mutations that way. That's less efficient, but some organisms are really good at doing it, like Saccharomyces cerevisiae or Baker's yeast, which is really kind of what led them to be a main explosive force for understanding the fundamentals of eukaryotic biology. 
So now when I entered Nicole's lab, I wanted to do what has become Vogue, uh, <laughs> which is you just get a lot of RNA or DNA, you put it on a sequencer because we can sequence a lot of things cheaply, and then you look for differential expression levels. And I remember I was talking to a mentor of mine from grad school, the late Christine Guthrie, and she was asking me what I was doing in my postdoc, and I explained it to her. And she's like, but then what do you do? Like, <laughs> you can't test anything like that. And so that prompted me to really kind of hunker down and try to establish genome editing in coenoflagellates. But one of the huge problems for coenoflagellates and other marine microeukaryotes is that it was really, really hard to deliver molecules inside of the cells. Mm. There are particular considerations for being in a salty environment that has different osmolarity and different concentrations of salts that really kind of screws up membranes as they get open. And so I'm a biochemist by training, and I just use some biochemical tricks to be able to sensitize coenoflagellates so we could deliver materials from the outside inside of coenoflagellates and then close the membranes in a gentle way and then resuscitate the coenoflagellates so that they could bear the genetic changes or even have stretches of DNA that are able to express fluorescent proteins so we can see their cell biology. So that is the main thing I did. And it was not easy. So it had been kind of this project that many people had tried in Nicole's lab for a while. And I had been warned by previous lab members, like, you are ruining your potential career by focusing on this. It's a dead end. I don't think they can be transformed. But no. um, you know, <laughs> yeah. And then you did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very <laughs> fun. And, I mean, it was also immediately rewarding because during the time I was in Nicole's lab, and like any lab, you form really close, wonderful friendships that are very intimate. And so it was also fun to just help out my friends and enable them to do their science. And it actually took me a while to figure out the aspect of biology that most drove my interest, which has really become understanding more ecological roles of coenos. That is amazing. I totally get what your what your colleagues were saying, because if I was in your position, I'd be like, yeah, that seems hard. I don't know if I want to do that. It's high risk, maybe low reward, but but you did it and that's awesome. And now everyone can replicate it if they want and have cool results. So that's great. And now yeah, you're a professor. Been, <laughs> and, and the point you make of high risk and maybe low reward, I, when I was looking for jobs, I definitely got told why would you make a tool that everyone can use? Like you need to more uniquely position yourself. And I think it's kind of the way that academics have gone where we try to really shore ourselves up as these amazing individuals instead of community players. And I get really driven by trying to make generally good things that'll help our small community grow and understand that intense biology. Yeah, I love that. That's great. And that's how everyone should be. I feel like there's a lot of this individualism and a lot of competition. But I think the best scientists are the ones that collaborate with others. So I think that's awesome. It takes yeah. all types, too. Of course. Yeah. So my next question, I just came up with this. And I don't know if this is completely deviating from everything else we're talking about. But what about the sponges? Are people studying the sponges? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are people studying the sponges, perhaps some of the most prominent 
sponge biologists are Bernie and Sandy Degnan, who are at the University of Queensland, and they have really pushed a lot of studies for amphimedin Queenslandica. And there are other amazing sponge biologists. There's Sally Lays. And then I guess who would be like my King Lab brother, but we did not overlap, would be Scott Nichols, who's at the University of Denver. And there are many other sponge labs that I don't know, and I'm sorry for not giving calls out to them. But people are studying them, trying to understand what's going on. As you are probably aware, there's been a roiling debate in terms of evolutionary biology. I was just going to bring this up, but continue. (laughs) Yeah. Are sponges the sister group to all other animals, or are these weird-looking organisms that look like a jellyfish, but have a lot of different adaptations that Mark Martindale has really pioneered, Mm -hmm. and others called atinophore, Mm -hmm. are those the closest living relatives of animals? And computational biologists who know way more about phylogenetics than I do have applied lots of different models and incorporated more sequences in order to give conflicting topologies of the animal evolutionary tree. I appreciate a review that Nicole and and Tonis Rokas wrote, which is like, you know, some of this debate is a little overwrought, mm-hmm. that there's a lot of shared biology, even between those two organisms and the rest of animals, that is very fundamental to understand and can be agnostic to the evolutionary position of these groups. However, Dan Roxar and his colleagues have really compelling data that filled in the genomes of these organisms in order to look at the synteny of genes, which for people who aren't geneticists, is the order of genes along a chromosome. And the abstract that I have seen of that work indicates that there are remarkably conserved syntenic relationships between tenophores and the protists that are closely related to animals, and that sponges have a genetic arrangement that is closer to cnidarians and bilaterians, and there are even some chromosomal features that would be incompatible with the rest of animals descending from a common ancestor with sponges. So it seems that tenophores may be the earliest branching animal lineage. Yeah, so I've been somewhat aware of this debate. And I mean, the cool thing is, if that's true, then sponges are this cool group that branched off that retained a lot of these even morphological features of the quenoflagellates, which is interesting. But I actually, so when I was an undergrad, like 10 years ago, I worked in a lab where we studied sea urchins, so early animal evolution as well. And I worked a little bit with tenophores and I went to a conference. It was like my first conference ever. And I was in a room where there was a talk about the basal metazoan. And there were these two middle-aged men who got up and were just screaming at each other. Like one of them was a tenophore guy and one of them was a sponge guy and they would not shut up. And I was, I love this drama. Like I love this. (laughs) With a capital D. Yeah, I loved it. I just sat there and watched them just look like idiots and scream at each other. And it was amazing. It was like a reality show. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I I think I haven't seen like those terrible <laughs> arguments 
it's definitely led to a lot of conflict. I mean, there's also been some controversy that I think has actually been really good for us coenoflagellate biologists of saying that Holler cells, the coenocytes of sponge feeding chambers, are not homologous to mm. a coenoflagellate, which is true. The overall cell, they're different and they have different adaptations. But I would believe that the actual color complex is homologous and the genes that make up those two different complexes probably evolved from a common ancestor. And there's a beautiful review that my former lab mate, who now has his lab at the Pasteur Institute in Paris, Thibaut Brunet, that he wrote with Nicole that really traced the presence of collar cells throughout animals. And it's more the rule rather than the exception that animals have collared cells. Mm -hmm. And so it's really only coenoflagellates and animals that have collared cells. So this was probably a feature of their last common ancestor. Xenophores have lost it, or we haven't seen those cells yet. And then the other implication of sponges branching off after tenophores had branched off would basically say that the nervous system of animals evolved once and was lost in large part in sponges. However, there's some really nice work from Jacob Musser and Detla Varent that has shown there are some very tantalizing features in sponges that have previously been ignored, which may show like some synaptic connections or stuff like that. So we really don't know. Yeah, it's, you know, it, this is something in my own work. I don't work with animals really, but building trees and hypothesizing about homology and ancestry is very subjective. It's really hard to know what to use to build a tree. Like I could see how this all got complicated but I do think it's really cool to think back on old time microscopists looking at cells and saying this looks kind of like this animal and then years later when we have some DNA sequences whether or not it's sponges or tenophores or whatever we have these sequences and the coenoflagellates are very closely related to metazoa like I think it's it's just cool how this whole narrative has developed yeah, it's pretty amazing to see those hypothetical relationships really be formed. And and there's a really great review, also Thibaut. Thibaut is like the best at reading literature and really synthesizing it. There's also a really great review that he and Nicole wrote about the history of the animal origins debate. Mm. Um, oh, I'm going to read that. Because some people thought it maybe were closely related to animals or that ciliates were. And it was Mechnikov who discovered macrophages and other cool immune cells. Uh, he's the one who first really proposed that coenoflagellates were the closest living relatives of animals. Yeah, I definitely have to read that. That sounds really good. I'm glad it's not ciliates because ciliates are hard to study and <laughs> they stress me out. Um, you know, I think ciliates will take over the world once we kill us and other animal life off with climate change. I'm always saying that, you know, like people, we're worried about humans right now. The world has a lot of issues, but the microbes will be fine. I think a lot of people forget that everything on this planet has survived the same amount of evolutionary time. There's all these protists doing all these weird things. They're so complex. They don't get a lot of recognition. Ciliates are so complex. Their genetics are so confusing. Every time I have to read a paper that involves a ciliate, I am like, ugh. <laughs> it's like over oh, my head. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they have really amazing biology. Yeah. So I have a good friend of mine 
also a descendant of the King Lab, who is now in Wallace Marshall's lab, who's a colleague of mine at UCSF. And my friend Ben Larson studies the ciliate that can walk. It basically has Oof. these cellular appendages called cirri, um, and it can walk along surfaces. And he's been able to do some really cool quantitative biology to understand those walking patterns and then is really trying to understand how it can build up those walking patterns from this really intricate microtubule fiber network. That is really cool. And I personally think one of the reasons I ended up working on protists is because just by doing microscopy, my favorite thing to find are paratrich ciliate that live in colonies and thinking about multicellularity and then I don't know. That like really hooked me. And I mean, now I work on algae, but you know, which, which arguably is easier because a lot of the genomes I work with are teeny tiny and there's one nucleus you know, in algae. <laughs> I have made the contention that the biggest, the most influential eukaryotic group in all of life's history are red algae. Um, Thank you. Oh my God. My boss and I would die to, <laughs> to talk to you about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not only for having been one of the earliest evolved lineages, but there's a huge group of eukaryotes that acquired a red algal plastid and yes. incorporated the yes. white genes. Yes, yes. I mean, it's, yes, I agree. I am biased because my whole PhD is on red algae, but um, <laughs> it is true. The red algal plastid is everywhere. The secondary plastid that came from green algae is like barely anywhere in the tree. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, when you just look at diversity, I think, you know, I love trees and green plants on land, and, like, we can't dispute (laughs) that they're important, but in terms of evolutionary biology, it's just, like, it's really amazing how the influence of red algae, and they are such unsung heroes in our world. Yeah, and just thinking of diatoms, diatoms are photosynthetic because of red algae, and they produce so much of the oxygen we breathe, a crazy amount, like completely change the atmosphere and the planet. So yeah, I, I, I think, I know, I really have to do a red algae. There's a lot of episodes that I need to do that talking to you has really made me <laughs> remember, but I need to do a red algae episode, which I haven't done yet. You know, so our connection that we have with algae actually came from red algae, and we think that there's a cue from red algae that's inducing multicellularity in coenoflagellates. And so that has led me to talk to Susan Brawley and get her expert opinion. And she's amazing. That has been one of my favorite scientific interactions I've ever had. That's so cool. You should get her on the show. I should. There's a, I really, I'm going to make a list. There's a lot of people I have to get on the show. I'm so busy and I'm so tired and I keep being like, I need to end this season of this podcast, but then I just keep making a longer and longer list of people I want to interview. So maybe I'll just keep doing it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think before we wrap up, is there anything else that you want to say about coenoflagellates that hasn't been said today? So we've talked a lot about their evolution. I've just hinted at a little bit of their ecology, but I just also want to emphasize these little tiny cells. There are a lot of other organisms like them that are called heterotrophs that can eat things, but they're environments where coenoflagellates can really dominate and they can be some of the most abundant protists. They can also tune the blooms that happen in the oceans. And I hope that there will be an increasing appreciation for the roles that these organisms actually play in the world around us and how they're tuning our ecology. Because nothing in the ocean really can exist by itself. 
it's all complementary interactions that have happened. And eukaryotes have lost the capacity to make B vitamins, and that has to be complemented by bacteria. Not all bacteria can even make all their vitamins. And there are these just amazing associations in the ocean that are so critical for our world. And when we break or exacerbate any part of it, it's going to make climate change a lot, 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 lot worse. And there are examples where that's happened. The Gulf of Mexico is one place where we've really uncoupled those associations because of fertilizers and stuff. So I would just implore people that it's not just the Amazon that we need to focus on, but it's also our wonderful oceans and the little tiny critters within them that are really driving a lot of life on Earth and that we need better efforts to save them. I love that. That is a great message to end on. You said that there's some environments where they can dominate. So (laughs) before I actually end this podcast, where is that? Because I would like to find more with my microscope. (laughs) There are some reports in some freshwater environments Mm -hmm. where bacteria are abundant. And there can be like hundreds of thousand cells per mil of coenflagellates there. It's really quite amazing. There's some reports in the southern ocean. So the ocean that surrounds Antarctica, that there can be thousands of cells per mil and coenoflagellates would be some of the most abundant eukaryotes there. There's also a really cool observation that really amazing protistologist and algal biologist who I really enjoy, Alexandra Warden and Camille Parier, who was in her lab, did a really elegant study that I think will be coming out somewhat soon where they basically did isotope tracing to see where nutrients went in communities. And one of the results they found is that despite the fact that coenoflagellates are not very abundant in a lot of communities, a lot of nutrients end up in them. And they are really, really efficient filter feeders. So at least from my own calculations, I've estimated that coenoflagellates can eat 60 times their cell volume in one hour. Whoa. Um, Yeah, so they can take in a huge mass of water, and some people have even estimated that they probably filter 70 to 90% of surface waters where they're uh, available. So that feeding apparatus is really remarkably efficient, and even despite low numbers, they can be quite effective at tuning the environment around them because they are just ingesting so much stuff. That's fascinating. I'm so glad you're bringing all this stuff up because most of my knowledge before this was just they're related to animals, which is very exciting and a very interesting story. But I always want to know what are these things actually doing on their own in nature? And it sounds like they're doing a lot. And I just didn't know. Yeah. And, you know, we probably don't know enough what they do. And they're really three protozoologists, some old guys from Europe. Uh, Frank Nietzsche, who's actually not old, uh, <laughs> but uh, in Hartmut, uh, Arendt's lab, uh, Helga, um, I forget Helga's last name, and then Barry Ledbetter, who just really, I love that they maintained this mantle of understanding interest protists for their entire careers and weren't lulled away by the Pied Piper of molecular biology to study some other established organism, but they really have done beautiful surveys uh, throughout time. And I think things like the Terra Oceans projects are only becoming more and more interesting Mm -hmm. to see where these protists, where they are in the open oceans. And then more recently, 
There's the Trek expedition that is going around the coastal waters of Europe in order to find the protists that are there. So we'll be able to get a much better survey of things that are in coastal environments versus in the open ocean environment. And I'm really excited to see those data. And there are amazing scientists who are really leading them up, like Flora Vincent and Omaya Duden. This is really exciting. Uh, I'm excited to see the data, too, because I use a lot of Terra Oceans and other data in some of my work. And it is exciting. I love whenever they publish a new paper, I just open up the figure. I just want to see what's abundant where. It's a really good time to study this stuff. Totally. And I think the other thing that's important to point out about Terra Oceans is it is really just a tiny pinpoint of the survey of oceans because they're, for the most part, single sites at a single point of time. That's not the full mm-hmm. ocean environment and the track X will be similar. So I think it's really imperative that we set up more longitudinal surveying stations to understand what's happening over time. Because if there's anything we know about protists, they really change through blooms. And one environment can really look very different from one season to the next. Yeah, totally. The first time I ever found quinoflagellates was in the pond next to our office on Rutgers campus. It was so exciting. They were on Asterianella diatom colonies. So I like was, I was Uh, first, I was excited because I was getting some great photos of star-shaped diatom colonies, which are always fun to find. They're so pretty. And then I saw little circular vase looking guys on them. And I, I was like, Oh, could these be quenoflagellates? And then I was like, I don't know. Do they live on these? And I looked it up and that the first thing was on Asterianella diatoms. So I was like, yes. And I feel like every spring I go back and try to find them again. So it's it's almost oh, it's almost time. Is there spring bloom of those diatoms? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, um, and it's a gross pond. It's a gross pond. These geese are pooping in it. It smells bad. It has invasive plants in it. It's really nasty, but there's a really reliable diatom bloom in there. And it's like I know uh, Nicole and my friend Ben Larson, they swear by like the grosser the pond, the more coen. Oh, really? That's good to know. I mean, I go to a lot of gross ponds and I've only found them a couple times. I'm always looking there and I always have wanted to find one of the rosette or like really colonial ones. And this one time I I could have sworn I found them. I found these colonies. They had flagella, but they were a little too big. I wanted them to be quinoflagellates so bad and they were not. They were anthophysis colonies. So they were like a non-photosynthetic golden um algae yeah. yeah i was like damn it they look exactly like how quinoflagellate colonies look but bigger <laughs> yeah on the internet i've noticed some people have confused the two i think you know the other thing to keep in mind is that if you just keep the flask around for a while you mm. may see different things blooming at different times so yeah that's a um, good point just keep looking you'll definitely find a colonial one sometime one day it's on my list of things i really want to find But anyway, David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. If listeners want to follow you or your work, where can they find you? So our lab website, when I update it, is biobooth.org. And then I've recently moved my lab over to Instagram to some degree. Oh, I'll follow Uh, you. I'm very poor with social media, but our handle is biobooth.lab. So I have two posts and need to really amplify. 
Cool. Well, I feel science Twitter, we get into echo chambers, mm-hmm. but Instagram is maybe our best hope for actually reaching out to the public. In my experience, that's definitely the case. Yeah. So thank you for coming on. And that's it. <laughs> thank you so much. So nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. Wow. What a fun episode. Something I took away from speaking with David is that he is really good at remembering names and quoting the research of other scientists. Listening to him explain the quinoflagellate animal story really highlights how science works. From microscopists making morphological observations that quinos look like collar cells and sponges hundreds of years ago, to scientists today sequencing quinoflagellate genomes to understand the evolution of specific genes, science is an iterative process where we build on the work of others in the past so that researchers in the future can build upon our own work. It's important to give credit to others and to acknowledge that big discoveries can only be made if we work in collaboration with one another. Plus, like you heard here today, this can all make for a really interesting and cohesive story. I hope you all enjoyed it and that you learned something. And now for today's a cool microscopic or small thing I saw this week, where I highlight the work of others on social media. This week, Desiree Morrison, or at Desi underscore Morrison on Instagram, shared a video of a ciliate called, let me see if I could say it, Ophryoglina. Not sure if I pronounced that right. The cell is really striking and the video is really clear. It's definitely worth checking out. And lastly, an announcement. I have some not so great things going on right now in my life. So I will be taking a few weeks off from the podcast, but it will be back. I just need some time to deal with some stuff. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. Tiny Living Beings is a Couch Microscopy production. Intro music is by Elf Power, and outro and transition music is by El Felipe Beniches. For more information on microbes of the podcast in general, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. You can also find some relevant merch on couchmicroscopy.com slash store. Thanks for listening, and I hope you all have a great day.